This is a Federal News Network podcast. In some ways, the IRS is defined by its forms. Many of the 800 forms represent a process or transaction. People in the agency's Enterprise Digitalization Project have been exploring quite a few projects that go far beyond simply digitizing forms to modernizing business processes and case management. For an update, we turn to the project director, Harrison Smith. Mr. Smith, good to have you on. Good morning, Tom. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. This office has existed now for, what, a couple of years, and uh, you've made some pretty good progress. If you would, just give us the quick background on the purpose of the whole project. Appreciate it, Tom. Yeah, we, we joke that we're almost a teenager because we've been around for, I think it's about 15 or 16 months. I mean, the general purpose of our office is to spearhead the IRS efforts to empower taxpayers and IRS employees to rapidly resolve issues in a simplified digital environment. And that obviously crosses quite a few efforts as well as issues across the IRS. What we really focus on is helping stitch together efforts across the service to create a more holistic and enterprise-wide perspective. And a perfect example of that is to look at not only uh, improving uh, you know, a technology activity, right, because a lot of folks talk about modernization and improvement in, in that space, and there are certainly opportunities there, but that's the prerogative and the authority of, of the Chief Information Officer, Nancy Seeger. We frequently work with Nancy and her team, but we look at improving business processes and policy positions in order to optimize both the processes that exist without technology, but also to optimize our existing and new technology investments. So we want to make sure as we are um, investing or, or continuing to work with technology that we've got the business processes and the policies lined up in such a way where we're making the best use of that effort that's driven uh, and, and governed by the chief information officer. The other piece that's really important um, is, that, as you noted in the lead-in, the, the forms are, are frequently a focal point for the IRS. We have, I think the number is 1,439, and that's certainly a large number, but it really does focus on how we engage with the taxpayer uh, and the public and making sure that, that we optimize our processes so that is a, a straightforward uh, and frankly simple solution and an experience that it can be. Uh, we want it to make it easy, as easy as possible for folks to engage with the IRS to provide the documentation that they need to provide in order to uh, understand uh, and fulfill their tax obligations. And digital service, digital transformation, that's a word bandied about a lot these days in the government. Your project has an extra syllable, digitalization. Al yeah. is in there. <laughs> and so I've heard you speak before, and there's a definitive meaning to that word digitalization as opposed to just digitization. And uh, tell us that distinction. Yeah, Tom, sometimes we struggle with it ourselves. We sometimes just go with Team Digi to explain our office. But no, uh, so I'll start with with digitization because that's the first piece. Digitization in the way that we use it is simply the process of making a paper item digital. Um, And and the example, and I'll I'll tell a quick story about my my mother in a moment to, to highlight the differences between digitization, digitalization, and digital transformation. So digitization is simply making a paper uh, item or, or perhaps a recording into a digital item that can be moved digitally as opposed to physically. Um, digitalization is the substantive difference between that and digitization is machine readable data, right? So if you have something where you've got, you know, you, you scanned a piece of paper on a copier or a multifunctional device, you have an image, but you can't search for things, right? It's not as though it is a native PDF. You can't necessarily search for a number or a name or, or things like that. So that's the, the substantive difference between digitalization and digitization as we use it. Digitalization involves machine-readable data and being able to search and, and utilize the information that's contained within that image. Now, digital transformation um, is, is substantially different. This doesn't necessarily have to do with machine-readable data or, or moving uh, images around. 
It has to do with optimizing technology in order to improve the taxpayer experience and, and our functioning. Uh, so as we talked about a little bit ago, you know, forms are obviously and, and cases are something that the IRS focuses on. Uh, but part of digital transformation may simply be focused on uh, in an appropriate and good way, may simply be focused on improving the taxpayer experience in a way that does not generate a form, in a way that does not generate a case. Um, and one of the things that we've worked on uh, fairly recently is trying to expand the aperture and expand our understanding of what might be possible from a technology perspective in digital transformation. Uh, by using mobile devices um, in order to look at uh, forms or publicly available information that the IRS publishes in a way that's more beneficial or more easy to use for the taxpayer. So again, that digitization is just that piece of paper, which is now, which is now digital and can be sent via email or something like that. Digitalization is that machine-readable data, and digital transformation uh, is, again, using those business and technology processes to improve the taxpayer experience. And I noted that I would tell a story, a quick story about my mother, and she knows that I tell this story about her, and we, and we joke about it. But my mother at one point took a picture of an email um, with her phone and then texted it to me. And that's a perfect example of digitization. I now have a picture. It's not as though she printed it out and mailed it to me. And yes, she has done that before. My dad likes to send, uh, send uh, cut out newspaper articles and send them to me. Um, but digitization was, was, that was her activity of taking a picture of an email uh, and sending it to me. And she said, it was a fairly long email, honestly. And she said, well, do you see the part where she says, you know, where, where your sister says this word? I was like, mom, I, I can't find that. I have to look through the entire email because it's a picture of the email. If you had sent me the email, that would be a digitalized item because I could search for a word or I could search for a number. And ultimately, digital transformation is would be the equivalent of you know FaceTime or something like that, because it doesn't necessarily rely on an image or a set of information. Again, it relies on a, an activity or a business process that helps improve how we function and helps improve the taxpayer experience. Well, if your mom ever gets audited, she'll probably end up sending the auditors away screaming by making things so complicated they'll never be able to figure it out. She's paper my days. <laughs> We're speaking with Harrison Smith, Project Director for Enterprise Digitalization Management at the IRS. Tell us about some of the projects you've done so far in these 16 months. Did you start with those that are really hard to digitalize, or did you start with one that many, many, many people do with the IRS to try to get a big win quickly. And you mentioned looking at a form with your camera, and maybe that's a good place to start. Yeah, and I think that's, that's, that's an example of a transformative project, uh, which is something that is substantially different than how we function. And, and what we do, to answer your question directly, Tom, is we look at, at those transformative projects. Uh, we look at uh, what we call adjacent projects, which are kind of like midterm efforts, as we look at incremental projects. So we do have, again, the, the project around utilizing augmented reality um, and similar types of solutions with your phone to help gather uh, and provide publicly available information to a taxpayer when they, when they point the phone uh, at an image or a document or a form. Um, that's certainly a transformative activity. Um, it may frankly be, Tom, that that's not something that works out or something that we're ready to, to invest in right now. But again, it helps us understand what might actually be possible. Adjacent activities... Um, which is, again, sort of the midterm area that we work on, uh, are items where we use or expand on existing processes um, or change existing processes so that they're more effective um, or more helpful to other business lines within the office. An example of that would be how we uh, utilize a fairly um, mature technology such as eFax um, for forms that had previously been submitted only manually. 
Um, by doing that, by using that adjacent technology and that adjacent perspective, we were able to accelerate throughput for more than 30, for more than 30,000 forms that the IRS receives on an annual basis. We were able to accelerate throughput by 81%. And that was, again, something that was an existing technology, an existing business process, but we expanded it and tweaked it in a way where it could be used for other items. And then there's the incremental piece. And the incremental is really the near-term items that we're able to, to look at and, and hopefully um, certainly less than, than nine months, hopefully less than six months, and maybe even closer to three months. Uh, and those could be things like policy decisions that are fairly straightforward that the IRS has, has a lot of latitude on, or could be something a little bit more robust, um, like what we tackled for retention periods for one of our forms. Um, we recently reduced the retention period for, for a form from 75 years to 40 years. Um, that seems like a fairly um, mundane activity, but we will enable us to save somewhere in the neighborhood of $19 million over the next 30 or so years. And that's just, just one of the forms that we retain. Um, and again, as I noted before, we do have 1,439. And so making sure that we look at forms, making sure that we look at business processes, making sure that we look at things like policies around signatures and wet signatures, um, and also there's more transformative pieces. We look at all three of those areas, that incremental, that adjacent, and that transformative across our portfolio of projects. And the IRS, of course, has been uh, struggling largely with modernization for probably 25 or 30 years now, different projects, different offices and so forth. But one of the enduring issues for government is they often chase projects long after it's clear maybe there's they're not worth chasing. And so good money goes after bad. You've developed a much quicker way of evaluating whether to continue investing in a project. And I think that's useful for everybody in government to hear. Yeah, Tom, and I think the piece here that, that, that we, we sometimes as individuals or, or whether or not we're in the government or another type of bureaucracy or just in our home lives that we struggle with is, is a sunk cost bias, right? We say, hey, we've worked really hard on this. We've, we've got a lot of um, uh, time built into this. What's another six months? What's another $6? What's another $60,000? Whatever, whatever the metric is. Um, and, and what I get especially um, grateful for, honestly, uh, especially during, during the holiday season, uh, is the support of of senior leadership, uh, not only from the commissioner and the deputy commissioner's standpoint, but across uh, the, the leaders within the IRS, is a support of, really from a perspective of, hey, this may not be the right time to do this. And that's not a bad thing. And so we've looked at projects which we've set aside for six months to say, hey, this is not the optimal time to do this. That doesn't mean it's a bad idea, um, but we need to set it aside. Or hey, this is, this is a fantastic idea. There's a great return on investment in this space, but it's not something that we're going to realize for the next 10 years. So we're not going to work on that right now because we have other opportunities that are more near-term uh, and more immediate that we can help address. And it's that slightly different mindset, and it doesn't work everywhere, Tom. Like It just, it just doesn't. But in areas where um, that ability to change things and really look at an opportunity from a perspective of what is our return on investment? Is it something that we can realize and reinvest and learn from, um, that's the way we look at things. And, and if, if we have to cancel or, or, or shut down a project early and we've learned something, that's in no way a failure. Uh, I think that the, where we get into struggle and where we get into the largest problems are the projects that we have to wait three or four or five or six years to find out whether or not they work. And we've invested a lot of time and money and effort at that point. It is harder and more difficult to look at a place where you shut something down. We have near-term projects that we can say, this just isn't working out as we expected, or we didn't realize that there was a requirement for us to do things this way, and we have to continue to do it in the same exact fashion that it's being done in. And that's okay. 
And if we can make those decisions in you know six months or six weeks or six days, that's a win. That's not a that's not a failure. That's actually a win. Um, and so that's the cadence and the perspective that we bring. So it's almost an iterative, agile approach to project management and even contracting that goes along with the iterative, agile approach to development itself. One thousand percent. And I think you can look at the work that we've done with our partners, uh, Shin Weber's and Guy Torres at uh, the chief procurement office. We set up contracts where we went out with a very very broad perspective. We want to be able to solve this particular problem. There are some guardrails involved, right? This is how we would like to do it. Uh, this is the approach. These are the timeframes. Um, but we said up front, hey, we may award three or four or five contracts. They'll be around for anywhere between 30 days and, and six months. But we don't plan on awarding options or providing future funding to everyone. We anticipating the, anticipate this being an iterative process where we learn and grow uh, and really focus our investments in particular areas. And I think it's also really important to note that the projects that we tackle are ones that we are able to look at something very specific in the near term, like a very specific use case or a very specific problem, or sometimes a very specific form. And if that project is successful, then can we expand it and scale it to other places? And those are the ones that are particularly interesting and show such a great uh, opportunity for enhancement and scaling are the ones where we can test something in the near term in a very specific way with constraints and tactical goals. But then going forward, we can utilize other forms or other processes or other offices. Those are the ones that are particularly interesting to us uh, and really show a huge benefit and opportunity for growth. And finally, you're expecting some output from contracts on the streets now very shortly. And then there will be kind of a winnowing down of contractors to proceed with some of those projects. Yes, um, those are those are established as, as part of the option period. So, so the contractors and industry partners, as we like to call them, do know when they are coming. But we do we do are looking forward to identifying specific outcomes and specific possibilities. And again, if they don't, if it's not something that's going to work right now, uh, that's okay. We may not award any additional funding. Uh, what we're looking at, in particular, for optical character recognition um, pilot, is are we able to extract machine readable data out of low resolution images? And we define low resolution at 120 dots, dots per inch. And if we're able to do that with a publicly available form that we've provided the industry partners, then excellent. What's the throughput? What's the return on investment? And we, can we start looking at other forms uh, where there are other opportunities to get um, access to more machine-readable data for more information? And having that capacity and that understanding of what actually has worked with a specific use case and then applying it to other use cases um, that's the area that we're really excited for. Um, in some cases, we've been able to identify a um, 25x increase over our current throughput or our ability to to analyze information. And that's something that uh, we're really excited about testing and making sure uh, actually works in our environment before we expand it to other projects and other forms. Harrison Smith is Project Director for Enterprise Digitalization Management at the IRS. Thanks so much for joining me. I appreciate the time, Tom. Have a great day. We will post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. During his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. 
Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the president and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union, where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy um, with uh, six actual actual, uh, afloat commands. Uh, The first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything. And it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Um, and then after I retired, after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm, I'm currently retired and enjoying life. And um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style? And how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite con- consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, it's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin and what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about. But that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, situations change, and you've got to figure out a way to get to them and find out what they're doing and where, what you can do to help them. Uh, I. We'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it um, from C to the C-suite. Fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual. And that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon. Um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day. And I knew that he had numerous problems of his own. But he would stop and he would focus on me. And he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, and I, I tried to do that um, throughout my career. But really, it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you used to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention. And it was, it was you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Uh, absolutely. Um, What I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. 
And I, I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federals organization, where I would tell branch managers that I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the, the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance in some cases and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up, uh, make decisions, uh, do what you think is right, and you never can go wrong. I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And, and I mentioned that I, I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy and um, his, his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with, uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, From C to C-Suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes. When I was at Navy Federal, I would tell sea stories uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they going to say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment, and it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book, and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan, who was the perfect, perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon, uh, and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. Uh, and I might add that um, any proceeds from the book, Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons in, in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And, and uh, I've learned a lot both from talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I, I, I would like to add one thing if I could, Shane. <clears throat> Um, during my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gained the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they, they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, WAPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is is continuous, it's nonstop, and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally agree. And, and I can tell you from the U.S. Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler, and to everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast. We'll see you next time. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you're sending money to. Second, 
confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. What will it take to conserve 10 billion acres of ocean, 1.6 billion acres of land, and over 600,000 miles of river? What will it take to protect and restore natural habitats in over 70 countries around the world and in all 50 states here at home? What will it take? You. Together, we will make it happen. It's in our nature. See how your gift can help at nature.org. The Nature Conservancy. Protecting nature. Preserving life.